horrendous, and it's finished. A 73-year-old man charged with the deaths of two neighbors and getting the green light. There's some trepidation, but I'm excited. The wildfire evacuees going home and the new area put on alert. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. And with that, the NDP's John Horgan officially becomes BC's 36th Premier. Good evening and thanks for joining us. And that's where we begin tonight. For the first time in 16 years, the NDP holds the balance of power in this province. Horgan and his new 20-person gender-balanced cabinet sworn in in Victoria today. Keith Baldry has a look at the new faces and what the top priorities will be going forward. It was a day of drama, history and plenty of emotion as the party that spent more than 16 years in opposition finally got back into government house to take power once again. I, I, Premier John Horgan's first cabinet has 20 ministers and two ministers of state. The key appointments, which contain few surprises, include Carol James as finance minister and deputy premier, Adrian Dix as health minister, Rob Fleming is in education, Katrine Conroy takes over the children and family development portfolio. David Eby is the new Attorney General. Judy Darcy is heading up the new Mental Health and Addictions Ministry. Mike Farnworth is the new Solicitor General. And Doug Donaldson is the new Forest Minister. And the Premier began his remarks by referencing the wildfire crisis. As we gather, of course, we're mindful of the tens of thousands of British Columbians who have been forced from their homes and the thousands who are fighting fires and the many more who are opening their hearts and their homes to those who have been displaced by a natural catastrophe which is increasing with regularity here in our interior and in our forests. There was plenty to cheer about for the 400 or so people present. Carol James. But by far the loudest and most sustained cheer was her former party leader, Carol James. Later, Premier Horgan paid tribute to his predecessor as well. My respect and admiration for Carol James is, is extremely difficult to quantify. And uh, we agreed together that we were going to go into this in 2017 to give it our best shot to form a government to deliver on the things that we've been working toward and Carol's been fighting for her entire life. Well, we can join Keith live in Victoria now. Keith, what a historical day for BC today. What is the first order of business now? Well, the first order of business, believe it or not, is actually opening up the legislature to hundreds of people here. I don't think anybody anticipated this. There are hundreds of people lined up to get into the legislature. There are hundreds of people in the B.C. legislature right now. Uh, it's very hot in there, very crowded, so it's a big day here, very festive day. Uh, now, tomorrow they get down to business. The first cabinet meeting takes place in the, in the annex just behind me there uh, early tomorrow morning. Some of the top priorities for the John Horgan government dealing with the fentanyl crisis, the wildfire crisis. Horgan also telling us today, He's very, very quickly going to be going to Ottawa to meet with Justin Trudeau and down to Washington to deal with the softwood dispute. So no rest here. Off to work tomorrow. Absolutely. Keith, thanks very much for all of that tonight. Thank you. Well, including in the NDP cabinet is a new ministry, the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions. As our Aaron MacArthur reports, this is all part of a key campaign promise, and it's to tackle the growing opioid crisis we have here in B.C. Judy Darcy, Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Without a doubt, this is the simplest thing Judy Darcy will do as cabinet minister. 
She is now in charge of what could be the most complex file in government. None, I don't think, greater than Judy's. We have to create uh, a new ministry, and that means working uh, within the existing structures across government. During the election, the NDP promised sweeping changes to the way addictions and mental health will be dealt with. More money, more treatment, more everything. But what it looks like, even the minister doesn't know yet. I'll be getting my briefing binder tomorrow, so I haven't seen that yet. I was just asked to take on this responsibility yesterday. At a rally in Coquitlam during the campaign, the NDP promised to open the doors at Riverview and open more beds. The province's medical health officer, Dr. Perry Kendall, is on record saying he's not sure a dedicated ministry would help, saying more red tape and more bureaucracy wouldn't help the problem. Mental health advocates, on the other hand, say they're cautiously optimistic. A ministry, at the very least, would give some sort of financial accountability. It would be really nice to know specifically what dollars are going to mental health and addictions. The issues are obvious. The solutions less so. The new minister begins her heavy lifting right now. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. In other news tonight, charges now have been laid in connection with a double homicide in Vancouver's West End. Our Romina Dea is live with the details on this one. Romina, we understand it is a senior who is facing two counts of second-degree murder. Exactly, Sonia. Two counts of second degree in connection to the deaths of 57-year-old Sandra McInnes and 51-year-old Neil Croker. All three lived in the same building here in English Bay. Now, the 73-year-old suspect, Leonard James Landrick, made his first court appearance today in provincial court this morning. He was handcuffed in the prisoner's box. He didn't say a word. Sources tell us that he may have tried to commit suicide over the weekend. Now, the bodies of both victims were found in separate units at the beachfront tower on Sunday, June 9th. That's when Landrick was first arrested. Residents obviously shocked when they found out that he was released and he returned to the building last week. Our detectives worked very hard on this case um, and uh, it was a very challenging case and they managed to put it before the courts now and charges were approved. So we're all thankful for that. Excitement really. I mean it's a celebration that this has come to an end and we can not have to worry about who's around the corner and what's happening. They've found hopefully the right person and it's done and everybody is crying and hugging and just it's like one big family now. We have never been closer. Now, Sonia, police are still not answering questions about the fact that they were at this tower about two weeks before the murders. They were here to investigate allegations of threats against McInnes, and now she's dead. As far as the motive goes, it's still a mystery. Landrick remains in custody. He's back in court on August 1st. Back to you. All right, Romina, thanks very much for that tonight. It was a wild and frightening night in an Abbotsford neighborhood. Loud car crashes followed by shots fired, police swarming the area. Jeff Hastings has the full story. A South Abbotsford house behind police tape. At a glance, you see some disrepair, but from the street, you have to look closely to see that the carport door has been kicked in. It's been recognized by the cops and everybody else all around here for years that it's a drug addict house. They sell drugs there and nobody wants to do nothing about it. Abbotsford police have been called here before, but not for anything like Monday evening's incident that left one man in hospital with a single non-life-threatening gunshot wound and another under arrest. Completely bizarre. 
A witness tells me he saw the two vehicles collide right in front of the house here. They then came around the corner, one man in a small car, two men in the other vehicle. The small car then hit that tree. All of the men jumped out of the vehicles and ran across the lawn, around the corner into the carport, and then two shots rang out. Well, one vehicle was trying to get away from the other. The other was trying to catch up to a vehicle. And at one point, I do believe that they did connect. Vehicles allegedly used as weapons. Shots fired in a neighborhood so accustomed to disruption, many didn't leave their TVs. I heard some, but I paid no attention to it because nonsense going on here all the time. After all, you just get used to it. Investigators bag a baseball bat from a nearby park when a witness says belonged to a man with the shooting victim. Firearms and violence charges are pending against the 35-year-old suspect. The shooting victim seemed to have taken the bullet in the behind, according to a witness. Police say at this time no charges are being considered against him. Do not mention a third assailant. Jeff Hastings, Global News. Now, police are recommending charges in that shocking case of a cyclist that was hit by a truck. It was all caught on surveillance video. This happened last month in West Vancouver. The 48-year-old cyclist suffering several broken bones and for a concussion. He has since been released from hospital but is still recovering. Well, after a public plea, a 47-year-old West Vancouver man, accompanied by his lawyer, turned himself into police. West Van Police now recommending a charge of failure to stop at the scene of an accident. The driver has not been identified. This was Cash Creek on July 9th. A thousand people forced to flee their homes because of an out-of-control wildfire. Well, today, some good news for evacuees. While that fire is still active, officials saying it is now safe to return. Let's uh, bring in our Sophie Louie, who is in Williams Lake for us tonight. Sophie, that call for Cash Creek evacuees coming in late this afternoon. Yeah, exactly right, Sonia. Just before we get to that, though, I should explain what's going on uh, behind me. You can probably hear the sound of um, alarm bells. That's a business up the street from me here in downtown Williams Lake right now. Uh, the police car in the background, one of four that raced to the scene here uh, to check it out because, of course, this town is evacuated. There have been issues with looting uh, over the course of this wildfire crisis. I, I mean, I'm certainly not saying that's what it is. It could be just a technical thing, but uh, the police are definitely on top of stuff like that right now. So that's what that sound is behind me. Now, as you mentioned, Cash Creek residents were allowed to go back home at three this afternoon. Uh, I'm sure they're very happy about that, and we'll have more on that in just a moment. But first, I have some important information to share with our viewers. The Caribou region district has issued an evacuation alert for the area south of Nazco. It's called McFarland Meadows and so while there is some good news for some evacuees today obviously the battle against these wildfires is far from over. So now let's bring in our Nitu Garcha who is live in Cash Creek tonight where after nearly two weeks out of their homes residents finally got to go back. Nitu? Sophie, residents coming back to this Cash Creek neighborhood got a first-hand look at just how close the flames got. Now take a look at this scorched hillside right behind me and just a few steps away here, a property that appears completely untouched. Now when I saw residents pouring back into this community, what I saw the most of? Tears, cheers, and hugs. Darrow, Christine, and Anne. A community reunited after a dangerously close call. Just up the hill, like, there was, like, see that one burnt mark up there? I saw flames coming up there. Hope restored. So we came here, lived through a flood, <laughs> and lost the uh, fire chief. And then uh, 
and then a fire came and we've been evacuated for that. No, now we're back. Uh, it's three times, right? Three times lucky. Cache Creek, once again populated by many of its approximately 1,000 residents, joining those who stayed back to help. The volunteer fire department in Cache Creek has been working 24 hours a day, seven days a week during the evacuation that's lasted for over 10 days. People stepping foot onto their properties and setting eyes onto the once nearly empty village after 11 long days. We're home, thank the Lord. The people in Kamloops, there's no words to describe what they've, they've, they've helped us to. I'm just so happy to be home. I'm sorry I'm breaking up. Just before these moments, dozens were lined up outside Cache Creek, some waiting over an hour to get back in. Check out the garage first. Isn't that funny? I want to make sure my car's good. Evacuees mentally prepared to lose everything. But as we followed some residents into their homes, and in this case, garage. All right, I'm happy. <laughs> relief continues to set in. My husband rebuilt it. He died a couple of years ago, so he this is his backyard project. So, But residents aren't getting too comfortable. This community still on evacuation alert. But for now, a lot of smiles as things slowly return to normal for this tight-knit town. Neetu Garcha, Global News, Cash Creek. Now, Cash Creek Mayor John Ranta is reminding residents to have at least three days worth of food, water and fuel ready because this community is still on evacuation alert. You might hear the helicopters above me as the wildfire fight continues. Now, John Ranta does say that utilities like water, sewer, garbage are up and running. Even the community pool is set to open tomorrow. So it does sound like slowly but surely things are returning to normal for this village. Back to you. What a relief for residents of Cache Creek need to thank you. So what does the big picture look like in the wildfire zones right now? Well, the BC Wildfire Service, Emergency Management BC, Interior Health, and the RCMP all coming together in Kamloops today to update the wildfire situation this afternoon, talking about the extent of the damage so far, the assistance being offered to evacuees, and the communities who are still at risk. Having been at the uh, community meeting last night, I heard a lot of positive from the people in the room that reported the last person to stand up, a gentleman said that uh, he said he applied and 24 hours later, Bob's your uncle, he had the money. There was some other glitches when the system was down, but um, I think being patient is the key here. Weather is the number one driver of fire activity. So uh, we are hoping for rain and continuing to monitor conditions on the ground as well as weather forecasts. So joining me now live is the mayor of Williams Lake, Walt Cobb, uh, on the an empty street in your city and that alarm going off. And we were just discussing why the business owner hasn't come to sh shut it off. And you forgot there's, forgot there's an evacuation and we have a ghost town. There, we have a ghost town right now. So it sounds like they got it off now. OK, so the, this, the town is still under evacuation order, Mayor Cobb, but... Are you starting to look ahead, perhaps, to we're a plan? Looking, we're looking ahead for sure. Uh, we're putting the plan in place so that we will be ready to go as soon as we can do it. It's not safe yet. Uh, there's winds predicted for tonight. The With this, the lack of wind that we've had in the last two days, we've been lucky. The fire crews have got out there and they've got some fire guards up. So hopefully they've got done what they need to so it won't come any further into town but mm -hmm. we're not out of the woods yet so to speak uh, it can still happen and uh, we can't let anybody come home yet unfortunately we have put in place to allow some 
essential service people to come back. We need some some trucks. We need some tanks. We need mm-hmm. this. We need some food services in town. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily restaurants, but Safeway, Overweighty, mm-hmm. uh, Save On, whatever, so that we can we can start make sure we got enough food to supply for the the firefighters that are here. Right, and then looking at a reentry plan. I, I I don't know how far down the road you are with that, but what does that require? Well, first of all, we have to make sure the town is safe, that the no, there's no chance of the fire spreading. Uh, <clears throat> we have to get the hospital up and running. They tell us we, we're not allowed to open until the emergency, at least the emergency room is open. So there's a number of things that have to be in place, but the main thing is to make sure that when we bring people back that it is safe. And as far as we know, that fire is still about seven kilometres away from town? Still about seven kilometres. It only moved about a foot, we're told, last night, which is really good, considering it was going 40 40 clicks an hour so uh, yeah no that was that was the good news in the wind we've had no wind today and we're supposed to be getting some rain on thursday so keep our fingers crossed all right thanks for that mayor walt cobb of williams lake uh so once again uh, the white lake fire just outside of williams lake seven kilometers from the town boundary and as the mayor said no wind right now but it'll be the next few days of weather that'll really determine what happens back to you sonia this crash on a highway in China triggering a massive explosion, as you can see, what one of the vehicles was carrying that may have caused this huge fireball. And the countdown to O.J. Simpson's highly anticipated parole hearing, what kind of life he'd return to if he is granted freedom. Those stories in a moment, but now you might be one of those drivers who still uses a cell phone at the wheel, despite all of the warnings. A BC business now thinks it's found a solution. They've developed an app that locks drivers out of their phones, but doesn't block any of the passengers. Grace Key shows us how it works. Troy and Colin are the two men behind a Made in Vancouver app that may be the solution to drivers who just can't put their phone down. So e-brake activated when motion was detected. E-brake turns on and locks up your phone when your car is in motion. Incoming emails and phone calls can be met with an automated response, letting people know you're driving. Siri, call Rachel. But voice-activated programs like Siri still work. You can make phone calls, use navigation, and listen to music. So I can listen to my oasis while I'm driving in the car. The creators of eBreak took a look at other similar apps and found one fundamental flaw. And that was that the driver could opt out at any time, at any speed. So just being able to simply say, I'm not driving, or turn off the solution is really no solution at all. So we looked at how we could do better. I can simply take the device. They still had to come up with a way to unlock the phone, something too difficult for a driver to do, but easy enough for a passenger. And following that indicator. An idea came to Troy while pushing his son out on the swing. And he kept trying to turn around and it kind of clicked. And I went, hmm, interesting. We, uh, we have an opportunity to do a test where the driver couldn't do a body gesture movement. My objective is to keep the indicator inside the frame. eBrake has partnered with TELUS for a pilot program for its employees and fleet drivers. They've also been in discussions with Apple. eBrake will be made available to the public through the Apple App Store and Google Play in the fall. And the phone's unlocked. Grace Key, Global News. Welcome back. Now, if you've been thinking that the weather has been pretty unusual over the past few months, you are not wrong. Our typical seasonal weather has either been too wet, too cold or too dry. Our Ted Chenecki has been finding out why. One of the warmest, driest summers so far. And aside from a minor change in the weather for Thursday, this endless wall-to-wall sunshine is expected to carry on. Just like those other extended weather episodes we endured months earlier. 
This pattern seems to be occurring time and time again, and that's why we saw prolonged periods of uh, rain through the fall, prolonged periods of cold through the winter, and then rain again in spring, and now we're dealing with this hot, dry weather. As to why this is happening, one theory is, is the jet stream has something to do with it. Those powerful high-altitude winds that race across the Arctic haven't been so powerful in recent years. Climatologists have been predicting longer weather events ever since it became obvious the overall planet's temperature was climbing. Normally the weather would travel in a kind of a wavy pattern that was fairly consistent and now it's going in much bigger loops and staying in uh, certain places for longer so that means you get bigger floods longer hotter drier spells and all of that's consistent with what we have seen projected in climate change models for a long time now. The first day of summer back in June was the last we saw of any rain in most parts of southern BC and not surprising the wildfire season is upon us earlier and with more ferocity but fires are only part of a new province-wide threat. So things like major floods and wildfires. And what we saw was that every single community in British Columbia has been affected by one and many of them multiple of those events. And what we'd like to ask the new provincial government is to really invest in helping our communities with climate change adaptation planning, emergency planning, and uh, you know, long-term thinking around how we can make sure British Columbians don't suffer too much with these kinds of changes. If the science is accurate, it could change the whole way we budget for extreme weather. It could be either we pay before to prevent disaster or we pay later to deal with the consequences. But either way, we pay. Ted Trenek, Global News. All right, keep an eye on the red truck that is parked on the left. This is what happens when it is clipped by a van, a huge explosion. The van was carrying paints and paper. This happened yesterday near Hangzhou in eastern China. Amazingly, looking at those pictures, incredible to hear that no one was badly hurt. Tonight, we are learning more about what O.J. Simpson could face if he is granted parole. His highly anticipated hearing is this week. After nearly a decade behind bars for robbery, the former football star still facing families who want to make sure he continues to pay for his crimes. When O.J. Simpson fights for his release before a parole board Thursday, he won't be alone. A friend or relative can testify on his behalf, and one of the robbery victims, Bruce Fromong, plans to speak but doesn't yet know what he'll say. Nevada defense attorney Dan Hill, who has no connection to the case, says if parole is granted, the board will set conditions. Friends say that O.J. would like to live in Florida if he is paroled. How likely is that? I think if, if he keeps being a, a model parolee, like he was a model prisoner, I see no reason why it shouldn't happen. Simpson has served nearly nine years for robbing two sports memorabilia dealers. During that time, friend Tom Scotto says Simpson has stayed in regular contact with all four of his kids. But if he's released, Simpson will still face the $33 million civil judgment won by the families of ex-wife Nicole Brown and her friend Ron Goldman. Attorney Daniel Petricelli, who represented the Goldmans, spoke to MSNBC for the special O.J. Simpson Chasing Freedom, airing Saturday. The Goldmans are undaunted, and they will con- continue to pursue collection of that judgment, I, I am sure. They won't be able to touch Simpson's pensions, including his NFL pension, which Scotto says pays $1,700 a month. But first, Simpson must win his release, a decision now two days away. Joe Fryer, NBC News, Las Vegas. Istanbul, Turkey is dealing with some massive flooding today. 
A heavy overnight rainfall all but paralyzed the city, turning highways into rivers and bringing public transit to a near halt. Subway stations and even Istanbul's famous Grand Bazaar were all caught up in these flash floods. The fast-rising water forcing many drivers to simply abandon their vehicles. The region was hit with a month's worth of rain in just a few hours. In Health Matters tonight, warnings about a deadly mushroom that is known as the death cap. It has been spotted growing in the Uplands area in Victoria. Experts now warning parents and pet owners to stay away from this. Uh, it looks like a puffball mushroom when it's first pushing through the ground. Last October, you might remember a three-year-old died from eating one of these. This mushroom's so toxic, it can destroy your liver and your kidneys. Well, up until now, BC's wildfires have had little effect on the Lower Mainland and the Fraser Valley. But today, smoke drifting down from those fires, forcing Metro Vancouver to issue an air quality advisory. Linda Aylesworth now on what that means and what you should be doing. At last, tangible evidence of the forest fires raging in central BC has reached the Lower Mainland as smoke makes its way down Howe Sound and the Fraser Valley. It's hard to tell with your eyes and nose exactly how bad things are because these particles are very small. It's sort of deceptive. We are at Metro Vancouver's North Burnaby Air Quality Monitoring Station. But Francis Rees knows exactly how bad things are and why Metro Vancouver is under an air quality advisory. We have 29 of these stations from Hope in the east to Horseshoe Bay in the west, and so we definitely have the region well covered. The stations measure, among other things, wood smoke particulate matter, or PM. Those 2.5 microns in diameter or smaller, that's half the size of a red blood cell, are the biggest concern. PM 2.5 is, is also known as fine particulate matter, and those are the particles that are most easily able to get right down into people's lungs, so right to the very bottoms of the lungs. Those particles can trigger immune responses in people with chronic health conditions. For them, this advice. It's important that they would avoid strenuous outdoor activities on days like this and ideally stay in an indoor, a cool indoor environment because indoor concentrations are likely to be somewhat lower than outdoor. For most, the fact that Metro Vancouver is currently registering anywhere from three to five times higher particulate matter than usual does not present a health risk. Even so, it's not a bad idea to track changes by logging on to airmap.ca. We stream the data from our stations back to our head office and then that's presented in, in near real time. By clicking on the station closest to your community, you can see how high the particulate matter levels are and what the air quality health index reads. Definitely not a freak out sort of thing. It's just more a warning for people who can take simple measures to reduce their exposure should do so. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. All right, let's go back to you, our Sophie Louie, who is in Williams Lake tonight covering the wildfires in our province. And Sophie, um, let's just talk about the fire crews for a moment because for them, this situation is extremely demanding. It certainly is, and that's why they have crews coming in from all over Canada, even uh, some crews coming in from Australia later this week to help out. And we are getting another close, up-close look, Sonia, tonight at a battle against one of the fires that's forced people out of their homes. It's called the Thuya Lake Fire, and it's forced people to evacuate their properties in Clearwater. As Catherine Urquhart reports, firefighters there are getting help from the other side of the country. On the front lines, firefighters are careful to extinguish every flame. The work is exhausting. 
it's both uh, physical and mental so uh, we're basically gearing up for a long summer um, and we're managing that uh, at our level uh, with breaks and, and drinking lots of water and eating healthy. The Thoya Lake fire near Clearwater spans more than 500 hectares. Containing that fire which of course is critical to to keep it in place so that we don't impact the highway and we don't impact those transmission lines that affect so many communities. Fortunately a crew from New Brunswick is here helping. A long way from home but uh, we're out here to help with whatever whatever BC really wants to put us on. Honestly we're out here to help to put the fire out and put it out and get it out for sure try to try to get the under control stamp on it it's definitely a marathon it's going to be a marathon it's not a race it's just making sure you're you're achieving small achievable objectives you know daily it's long days we work 12 to 14 hours a day 15 sometimes uh the big factor is the heat how hot it is then you get more exhausted and you can get some uh, heat stroke The role this crew is playing, like so many others, is critical in fighting these fires. Catherine Urquhart, Global News, Clearwater. And these guys, of course, work many days in a row, long days each day. But, you know, even though the firefight continues, uh, their uh, daily life continues as well. And uh, birthdays happen. And one happened today for one of these guys. Happy birthday to you. Williams Lake firefighter Nick West turning 37 today, and I'm sure the guys are watching at the fire hall right now. So happy birthday, Nick. Uh, those are all the Williams Lake firefighters wishing him a happy birthday. He mentioned to us that when he was born 37 years ago on this day, that there was a fire in Penticton, which is his hometown. That's where he was born. So wow. it's almost kind of fitting that he's out here fighting fires uh, today on his 37th birthday. And I do have to mention one more. I know we normally only do 100th birthdays, Sonia, but uh, Twyla Nelson, who's a local resident here who's stayed behind uh, to help out by making sandwiches for firefighters uh, and, and the like, it's her birthday as well. So I just want to give a shout out to her because she's taking care of us as well. Sonia? Absolutely. Absolutely. They deserve that time. Sophie, thanks very much for that. Sophie Louie in Williams Lake for us uh, tonight. Now, when employees of a Colorado business arrived to find this, they naturally assumed the worst. Then they pulled up the security video, but they're still left scratching their heads. We'll show you why after the forecast with Christy Gordon. <laughs> we'll explain all of that. Um, it's still really smoky out there, Christy. Yes, yeah, not as bad as it was yesterday evening, Sonia, but you can certainly see the haze over the water there, and that's the case right across the lower mainland region. So that air quality advisory still in place for the lower mainland. In fact, the entire province almost, except for the BC Peace River area and northwestern parts of the province. This is the current situation, courtesy of the NASA satellite imagery. Uh, the majority of the smoke today was in the Williams Lakes, so the Caribou, and up towards the central interior region, and then over, spreading over towards the, uh, um, uh... Uh, Columbia region. Now you can still see though it entrapped. We've got that high pressure in place all the way through the valleys. You can see that smoke spreading down into the lower mainland region as well. And how far is it going today? Well, the air quality advisory is in place across southern Alberta as well. You can see that smoke spreading into that region, but it's easing up in Saskatchewan. And there were reports of some smoke all the way into Ontario. It's amazing how far that travels. As soon as it gets caught up in the jet stream, the smoke can go a long, long way. Now, 
now what we're watching is this system here. So hot, dry weather across the region right now, very little wind. And tomorrow that will be the case for the most part. But this system is going to move in in the afternoon tomorrow, especially in the evening hours is when we'll start to see a change in our air mass. We'll start to see hopefully a lot, a little bit of that smoke uh, to push out of the lower mainland at the very least. And then showers. So this is where the showers at this point are going to be focused on in the evening, which is good news. Uh, so in through that caribou and the central interior region where we need the moisture, how much rain at this point is very little. We're talking about a couple millimeters, so most likely not doing a lot of good, but at least it won't be worsening the situation. Along with this, though, we do have a risk of thunderstorms and gusty winds possible. So we are tracking that quite quickly, uh, closely. So um, that's starting tomorrow afternoon into the evening hours and then continues through the day on Thursday. You can see how spotty the showers are. So here's your tomorrow, hot and dry, as I said, those showers pushing in towards the afternoon, evening hours for the central interior, the caribou region, spreading down to Williams Lake and over towards the Columbia area as well. Hot and dry across the south with more cloud by the end of the day. And that's the same case for the south coast with the chance of showers from Campbell River north. 23 degrees inland or near the water inland regions, 26 degrees tomorrow. We'll see the showers develop Wednesday night and continue through our Thursday, but we're right back into sunshine on Friday and through the weekend. Happy birthday to Grace Mortensen, also Pauline Tondu and Betty Pugh, all of them celebrating uh, birthdays, 100, 102 and 103. And Brittany Brunskill sent us this one from Abbotsford. This was the sunset last night as we saw so much smoke across the lower mainland and it actually creates for a red sky as it's going down, the sun going down. Wow, those are incredible pictures. Christy, thanks so much for that. All right, when workers at Colorado's Argonics Inc. arrived at work this morning, they assumed the worst. Take a look at this. Their front door shattered. Uh, they figured someone had broken in. But when they discovered nothing had been touched inside, well, obviously they then pulled up their security video. And then they saw this. A goat rearing up and ramming the door several times. Why it decided to take out its aggression on the door we have no idea. But the subject is up for debate. When the glass finally shattered, it ran off and so did apparently other goats that were milling around behind. Uh, it is believed that the goats escaped from a nearby farm. No word yet on whether they have been caught. Our, our director it. just said something quite interesting. He may have seen his own reflection. Right. In the window. and was Ramming. <laughs> ramming up against them. Until they are proven guilty, they are just scapegoats. Oh, squire. Come on, I couldn't resist. Sorry about that. Yeah, All right, very good. Very good. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> I have nothing to say to that at all. I don't I, think I, I you should, no other really. Puns. No, no. no other goat puns. No. Hey, it's pun for the whole family. <laughs> oh, God. Scapegoats. You, you should be a dad. No, I shouldn't, joke. actually. <laughs> no, I should not. Uh, oh, I can tell you this, though. Huh? Let, let your husband take that joke if he wants. Okay. All dads can have it, but please don't make me a dad. All right, Squire. I don't, I don't dislike kids just, at all. I just want to make it really clear, because you said it like 10,000 times I know, before. Like I know, I know. I went a little... Squire doesn't want I to I really wanted to drive the point home. Like, but just, you know the reason why is my car is not big enough. Oh, right. To have kids in the car. That's, that's, that's a real issue. Yeah. Okay, so... Changing it. <laughs> Let's just leave it there. No, let's leave it at okay. that. Okay. Not that he ever played that much, but the Whitecaps have dropped backup keeper Paolo Tornaghi and elevated Spencer Ritchie to be the stand-in for David Osted. 
Caps' next game is tomorrow in L.A., so Richie will be there and will be the backup, likely for the rest of the season. And quite frankly, you could see this move coming. I think the game in March when Tornaghi replaced David Osset after he got a red card and allowed three goals in San Jose put the seeds of doubt in the minds of Whitecaps management about him. And then they started using Spencer Ritchie in the Canadian Championship games. That pretty much meant Tornaghi's time here was doomed. But like Tornaghi, Ritchie is not going to play that much unless Osted gets hurt, and hopefully he does not. So we checked into it. What can 250 million U.S. buy you? Well, you could get the most expensive house on the market in America. It's got a great view of L.A. It has 21 bathrooms and the helicopter from Airwolf. Boy, talk about an 80s reference. Or $250 million could buy Neymar Jr. off of Barcelona. Now, today there were rumors in Europe that Paris Saint-Germain were willing to pay that transfer fee to get Neymar. But now Neymar says, no, I'm happy in Barcelona. However, despite being happy, his people have gone around to the big teams in Europe to see if anyone would be interested in paying that enormous release fee and signing him. Now, that's the thing. The $250 million is just to get him out of Barcelona, then you'd have to negotiate a contract with the man itself. It sounds like this story might be a negotiation tactic to get more money out of Barcelona, even though he just signed a contract with Barca last year. Well, for much less money, you could sign one of these three men in this picture. But right now, no one in the NHL is making offers to Yermir Yager, Jerome McGinley, or Shane Doan. All are in their 40s now. Yager is really in his 40s. Two of them, Aguila and Yager, are guaranteed Hall of Famers. Don't, I'm not so sure he's Hall of Fame material. But all three right now are without a team, and none of them want to retire. Of the three, Yager might have the best chance of landing with a decent team. Florida dropped him to go with younger players. He could still get you 20 goals. He rarely gets hurt. Doan probably has the second best chance to sign with someone, although his stats really fell off last year after a good season the year before. And as for Jerome McGinley, he has played for five teams in the last five years. He's really now a third or fourth line guy. He might have the toughest time of the three latching on somewhere before next season. The young man in this picture is Chris Chrysologo, SFU product out of Marine Drive Golf Club and right now tied for the lead after one round of the BC Men's Amateur being played at Morgan Creek in Surrey. Four under par 68 today, Jane Hoon Kim is uh, the other at minus four. But maybe the most impressive number today at the BC Amateur was Doug Roxborough, also a marine drive guy, shooting an even par 72, tied for 14th, I believe, at an age when most people are retiring. And next on the tee from the Marine Drive Golf Club, please welcome Doug Roxburgh. This is the 51st consecutive year Doug Roxborough is teeing it up at the BC Amateur. Let that sink in for a moment. Doug's smooth swing, not only a fixture at the BCM, but one that's produced 13 wins during his half-century of competition. He really is the face of golf in, uh, in British Columbia. And, you know, Doug is the type of individual we pair him with our better younger players, uh, not only so that they can see how he conducts himself on the, uh, the golf course, but, you know, he can give us an indication of, uh, you know, what kind of potential these young players have. His bag tag should read BC Golf Custodian. Along with the Baker's dozen of BC Championships, the longtime Marine Drive member is a four-time Canadian amateur champ. Back when Doug was winning all those championships, he was lapping the field. Now at the age of 65, he's just trying to keep up with the young bombers, many of whom are old enough to be his grandchildren. I mean, the field 
I'm getting older, the field's getting younger, and uh, there's some really good players. I mean, they've got great experience. They've been playing tournament golf for, you know, a long time. They start when they're 10, 11, 12 years old, and uh, they get great coaching, good programs, and uh, there's some really good players. It really is the passing of the torch between, you know, the the older, experienced generation and the, the new young players coming up, and it's really nice to see. SFU's Chris Crystal logo is one of those capable of not only carrying that torch, but striping it down the fairway. Crystal logo is coming off a dominant NCAA junior season that produced four wins and top ten finishes in seven of ten tournaments. Carding scores under par in 19 of 28 rounds, but the one tournament he's never won is the one he wants the most this week's BC Amateur. Jay Janor, Global Sports. There you go. Brilliant stuff. Thanks very much again. All right. Thousands of students from more than 150 countries are in Washington, D.C. tonight, and that is to pit their robots against each other. It's a competition that includes a team of young girls from Afghanistan who were determined to make it. Some people saying that that has made them the winners before the actual contest even started. NBC's Andrea Mitchell has got the full story for us. This was an entrance they never thought would happen. Six Afghan girls, all teenagers, competing with teams from 157 countries in the first international robotics competition. They arrived in the U.S. from a country where girls could not even go to school under Taliban rule and still in many places face taboos against female education. But the Afghan team was determined. Twice they took a bus 500 miles to the U.S. Embassy in Kabul for visas. Twice they were denied with no explanation. After news stories and complaints from members of Congress, the State Department was finally overruled by a higher authority, President Trump. For two days, they've been fine-tuning their robot, which can sort balls by color, separating blue from orange, a test, they say, of how machines can separate clean from contaminated water. The girls eager to prove themselves to those back home who still doubt what girls can do. Why was it important for you to be here? It's important to be here because of showing the talent and ability of Afghans. Showing the talent and the ability of yes. Afghan women? Yes, and show this that the Afghan women uh, can make robot too. With less time to prepare, the Afghan team did not win top honors, but still won a prize tonight for overcoming obstacles and for their true grit.